Emotions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work. The work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's good? What's good, New York? This is Jack Devine of he, him pronouns, and you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute live from the WBAI studios. We're a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000 members and organizers who are working on together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Tonight, we're continuing our series of interviews with the DSA for the Many Slate and are joined live by Kristen Gonzalez, a tech worker and community organizer running for State Senate District 17. District 17 might be a new district spanning from Woodside, Queens, to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, but that depends on the courts. We'll talk to Kristen about the Senate registering debacle and much more. We'll also be opening up the phone lines later in the show and want to hear directly from you. But first, the headlines with Amy Wilson. What's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson with your headlines for today, Wednesday, May 4th. In local news, Mayor Eric Adams announced a new $100 billion operating budget for the city, which includes increased funding for education and social services alongside the NYPD, which is a reverse of his earlier pledge to keep police spending flat. Housing advocates are unimpressed with the budget's $2.5 billion annual commitment to affordable housing, which, again, falls short of the $4 billion Adams promised when running for mayor. Mayor Adams' proposed Parks Department budget falls far short of his campaign promise to bring parks funding to 1% of the city budget. Council member Chi Osei has called on the mayor and council to push toward a similar 1% benchmark for the Department of Cultural Affairs. The Rent Guidelines Board held a hearing where landlord interests called for one-year rent increases of up to 6.5% on the city's million rent-stabilized departments. An appointed panel on education policy rejected the city's initial funding formula for public schools, raising long-standing concerns about the formula's equity during what is usually a routine annual vote. A community board in Manhattan's Chinatown rejected a proposal to build a new homeless shelter on 231 Grand Street following community opposition. The New York City Council voted to pass the Transparency Law, which requires businesses to disclose minimum and maximum pay ranges on their job postings. Notable exemptions include jobs that can't or won't be performed entirely in New York City. Council members have introduced a bill aimed at ensuring the presence of at least one public bathroom in every zip code in the city. In elections news, the New York Court of Appeals ruled 4-3 to that the recently passed maps for state senate and congressional district violated the state constitution and ordered new maps to be drawn by a, quote, special court master. 
The court also ruled that the primaries currently scheduled for June 28th will likely have to be moved to August to give time for new districts to be drawn. While the assembly districts were not challenged in this lawsuit, that map faces a new suit filed last week and may need to be redrawn as well. Assemblymember Robert Carroll criticized fellow Assemblymember and Brooklyn Party boss Radnisi Bashat Hermeline, referring to Hermeline as, quote, Donald Trump in Brooklyn, after the Board of Elections rejected a challenge to petitions for judicial candidates backed by Hermeline. In national news this week, Politico published a leaked majority opinion of the Supreme Court in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health case currently being heard by the court. The opinion is authored by Republican-appointed Justice Samuel Alito and lays out reasoning for repealing landmark reproductive rights legislation Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. It is currently supported by five Republican-appointed justices, including Trump appointees Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. The final decision in the Dobbs case is expected sometime in the next two months. While the repeal of Roe v. Wade comes as no surprise to grassroots abortion access organizers who have been fighting back against both the Republicans' decades-long assault on abortion and the Democrats' long weakness and inaction on the issue, the news galvanized the public, shocking and horrifying the millions of people in the United States who support access to abortion. This news also comes amid an upswell of worker organization in the reproductive rights field, including at the landmark abortion rights research center, the Guttmacher Institute, whose workers announced this week they have unionized with the nonprofit Professional Employees Union. Guttmacher Employees United are asking the Guttmacher Institute to voluntarily recognize their union, solidarity with them, and with all organizing reproductive rights and abortion clinic workers whose jobs and livelihoods are also under constant threat due to the right-wing assault on abortion. Yesterday, Tuesday, May 3rd, thousands streamed to Foley Square in Manhattan to protest the potential repeal of reproductive rights legislation. Regular listeners of Revolutions Per Minute have heard our interviews with members of New York for Abortion Rights, an independent socialist feminist collective that has been organizing for abortion access in our city since 2017. We encourage you to revisit those interviews to hear a socialist perspective on abortion access. At yesterday's rally, Sage from New York for Abortion Rights was one of the few grassroots organizers to speak from the stage. Let's hear what they had to say. Clearly, 
you just heard Sage from New York for Abortion Rights speaking at yesterday's Foley Square rally in response to a potential repeal of Roe v. Wade. Abortion is older than the police and the church and much more popular. And we will accept nothing less than full and free access to abortion without shame, excuse, or apology. All people have the right to consensual sexual expression and enjoyment and the right to decide when and if they become parents. We will never stop fighting for each other and we'll continue to cover this struggle right here on Revolutions Per Minute. I'm Amy Wilson. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight. Now let's go back to the studio with Kristen Gonzalez and Jack Devine. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.substack.com. So I just want to thank you, Kristen, so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good to be here. And wow, after hearing all of that from Sage, what else is there to say? (laughs) That was a great intro. Yeah. Yeah, we want our listeners to get to know you further. But before we jump in, we just heard from Amy in the headlines. And as you just mentioned, Sage, uh, this attack on abortion rights and the the struggle to fight for abortion rights. Uh, Any reaction to uh, those comments? Yeah, it's been um it's been a long week. It's been pretty devastating and I share in the frustration that so many people, you know, feel throughout the country, definitely in the city and in terms of reaction, I think it means, you know, I'm very focused on policy obviously in this race. We need to make sure for, you know, in Washington it means that we're codifying Roe versus Wade into law. It means ending the filibuster. It means packing the courts, right, to make sure that attacks on working class people like this don't happen again. But here in New York, I'm thinking about a lot of legislation that's on the table, right, and that folks should know about, listeners should know about. So we're so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, a few bills, for example, S eight seven seven eight, which provides you know legal protections for providers of legal abortions in the state. You have S seven five eight, which establishes abortion access fund and allows you know folks to actually designate it as a gift to fund on their personal income tax returns. Um, and then there's there's a couple of other bills as well. But you know it's important to also look at how are we pushing now our local leaders, not only our federal leaders, to do better and make sure that we're not, you know, putting our most vulnerable, most marginalized communities at risk moving forward. Yeah, I think that's, a, those are really great points. That it's, it's clear that there's a need to push forward for legislation that protects these rights further, and that this is a clear attack against women, their ability to control their own bodies. Um, it's it's an attack against it humanity in general. And it's Mm -hmm. just the way that the the court is trying to discipline, um, especially uh, poor working class women who are not going to be able to fly to escape to go to another place to get an abortion. So that's, I think, another aspect of this, that this is a a power grab and a demonstration of violence um, from the state against uh, women and DSA needs to organize to fight back. And I think there's a legislative strategy that's necessary. And then there's the question of how do we build a movement to, to push forward that legislative strategy? How do we get people out in the streets? How do we get the organized labor involved in this fight? 
I think these are big questions uh, for the movement moving forward. Um, and we can continue to talk about this uh, the rest of the night since it's such a uh, crucial issue. But I just want to um, give you the chance to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, just ask you a question. Uh, what social forces in your life led you to socialism? Yeah, absolutely. And um, just realizing I may, I may have hit mute there <laughs> before. Um, so just Jen and I, let me know if you're able to hear. But, um, you know, as far we'll as... definitely hear you. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, like, looked down and it said I was on mute. And I was like, oh, no. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the wording of your question. What social forces? Because it kind of sounds, and it is, right? Our lives, it's its more than one person. There's so many sociopolitical factors that go into every part of our existence, so many parts of our identities that, you know, it, me, myself, like so many others, I, what led me to socialism was just lived experience, right? So I grew up, I was born and raised right here in Queens, uh, and I was born in Elmer's Hospital. I grew up in a single-parent household. My mom was from Puerto Rico. My dad was from Colombia. And when I was really young, my dad passed away. And so my mom, like so many other families in the city, right, so many other working single mothers had to figure out how to keep up with the rising cost of living, keep a roof over our heads, food on the table. And so the first part of my life was really, you know, remembering her struggling to do that, right? That meant seven days of work. It meant cleaning houses on the weekends. And again, that's a, that's something that's really common for a lot of, a lot of families. And, um, you know, when I was in about fifth grade, my mom also, she was emphasizing that education was a path to a better life. She didn't want me to struggle the same way she had. And she saw that my local public school was underfunded and overcrowded. And so she actually Googled, you know, top schools in New York and Google gave her a top 10 list. And she didn't realize at the time that that top 10 list meant top 10 <laughs> prep schools and independent schools in the city. And she just called and asked if there were opportunities or scholarships and they walked her through the process. And I was really fortunate to, you know, have the opportunity to go to prep school in the Upper East Side. And what that meant beyond having to travel for a better education, which again is something that's actually very shared. With a lot of students throughout the city who you know, have long morning commutes and afternoon commutes because they go to schools that are far away from where they live. Um, but what it meant for me was really growing up between two completely different worlds, right? I grew up in Umper, so every day I was traveling from an immigrant working class community um, where, you know, all the families like mine were working that, you know, seven days a week, but still very close to on the brink of, of one disaster away from losing everything. And then the Upper East Side, going to school with some of the wealthiest students, really seeing the New York for the rich, right? What it meant to have every resource available, every opportunity available, small class sizes. And that experience of the two New Yorks is what, you know, that, that is what forced me into public service because I started organizing as a high school student, wondering why we had such breathtaking inequality. And that organizing led me into organizing as a first-generation college student. It led me to working in multiple levels of government, from city council to the Obama White House to Senator Schumer's office on the Hill. Um, and then ultimately, it led me to socialism because once I entered those spaces, those you know political spaces, and entered government, I saw you know firsthand that so many of you know there are so many politicians around me that were bought out by special interests, that didn't have working class communities like mine at heart. So it it was that 
experience of, of just like seeing our voices not in the room at all, us not being considered, that pushed me to socialism because when I came back to New York, you know, I that's when I joined DSA. We I realized that the only way we were gonna dismantle the systems that I had lived through going to school and lived through trying uh, as trying as a government worker right, to change was really by organizing working class communities and especially the same working class community that raised me. And so that's that was really the impetus to join DSA. And that's, you know, was my path going from growing up to being on the left to being a democratic socialist. So you've seen the world that we live in from all these different angles that you growing up under the harsher reality of, of capitalism and an immigrant working class community, seeing what exploitation and oppression means for people on a day-to-day basis, and then getting to see the other side of things from kind of a more well-resourced and, and richer school where people have access to more more resources that means their life is easier and better and they have the connections to take their life to the to a certain level that is not accessible for other people and then you've got to see things from the perspective of this of the state where you're you're entering these offices and rather than the government working on behalf of working people and putting forward the legislation that would improve their lives that is the most rational and and the best step forward in general, you see how the power of capital shapes legislation and how people, that there's a relationship to getting in the office to who has uh, more money and power. And so this has led you to DSA. So what kind of organizing have you done within DSA itself? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think you, you summed it up right. Um, and I think the thing, and this is what I tell everyone, um, when I encourage them to join DSA, it's the fact that this organization is really rooted in not only um, being anti-capitalist, right, but really organizing multiracial working class communities. And that's really the key to our collective power, right? So so that's, you know, at the root of a lot of my organizing. And then coming into DSA, when I started organizing with DSA, I started first as a Queens branch mem- uh, member. You know, AOC was running in my home district. Uh, my mom's still in Elmhurst, right? She lives right across the street from Elmhurst Hospital. And so I started there. I started in electoral work, canvassing for AOC. And then eventually that meant Tiffany Caban, right? Other DSA candidates. And then once I had come back from DC, I also had a bit of a career change. I started working in tech, um, like doing user experience work. And so I wanted a way to not only continue organizing outside of work, but to bring in some of those new skills. And that's why I joined the DSA Tech Action Working Group, because around that time, there was also a lot of conversation in the city about the digital divide, a lot of conversation around surveillance technology and how it was being used, Link NYC kiosk as, you know, an imperfect um, and not really a solution all at all to Internet access. And so I joined DSA's Tech Action Working Group because that was the working group focus, not only, you know, with other folks who were working in a similar setting as me, but also focused on those issues specifically. And then I, you know, served on the OC or or organizing committee for for a couple of years um, while I also continued to do electoral work. So so that was really the bulk of my DSA organizing experience. Um, And then, you know, I was also organizing outside of DSA, too, during that time. But ultimately, all of my organizing work, whether it was DSA electoral or DSA tech action for, you know, tech action work or, you know, the other things I was working on around 
affordable housing or a community board. It was all based in publicly owned infrastructure, which I think is another, you know, very socialist project, right? How do we have publicly owned, publicly run um, infrastructure? Absolutely. And I think I'm going to want to ask you more about Tech Action Working Group later in the show. Um, And I think you've already been hinting at the answer to my next question. But why did you decide to run for office? Um, Yeah, I get that a lot. I didn't, I was asked to run for office. (laughs) I wasn't planning on running (laughs) for, for state senate. I moved from Elmhurst to Long Island City and I was happy with the organizing I'd been doing with DSA outside of DSA. And then at the, you know, at the end of, of last year, I think, you know, some of the folks I, who I'd organized with, it, that's when they started talking about, oh, like based on the census, right? Based on population growth, Queens is probably owed a new seat, but we have no idea where. We don't know if it's assembly or Senate. And they said, you know, if it, if it happens, though, if things work out, there's a new seat, we happen to be in it, would you consider it? And, and at first, I was really hesitant, um, I think because of my background and, you know, working in government, <laughs> I think I'd had a lot of frustrating moments. But then suddenly, you know, in having that conversation, I started relating back the organizing work I was doing around publicly owned infrastructure to specific pieces of legislation at the state level. So, for example, public power and the campaign for public power is how do we own our, you know, how do we create a public model for, for you know, Con Ed, which is Con Ed's really a monopoly, right? It's a private company. So how do we replace that with public infrastructure? Um, and I think through that connection, that's when I decided it was something I'd want to do. And, and lo and behold, in February, we saw this new Senate seat come out. Um, and uh, it was very, you know, fortunate. It includes LA, Long Island City, and I, that's when we launched our campaign, and it's been a whirlwind ever since. So it's it's these campaigns that you were already involved in organizing that you were doing in DSA for publicly owned infrastructure, like the public power campaign, um, that there's this major push for legislation uh, for in the state right now, and seeing that in being asked to... Uh, to run for office because you were seen as a person who could, you know, push these campaigns further along in the legislature. That's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, unfortunately, there was a big shakeup in the Senate races uh, last week. Uh, what happened and how are you feeling about it? Right. So I think for folks who may be listening, who uh, may not have, may have heard of it and, and are less familiar or haven't heard about what happened, essentially, and, and this was part of the updates, I think, given in the beginning, right, the maps were struck down um, by, you know, the highest court in New York. And similar to, and I'm, I'm seeing a theme this week, right, <laughs> courts that um, have, you know, folks who don't represent our community, but also don't have our community's best interests at heart. Um, it was really disappointed to see the maps getting struck down. And so right now we're waiting um, on new maps to come out. They should be out by May 20th. Um, so that's really when we'll know. That's when the final. There will be some preliminary maps by May 16th. Um, and essentially, you know, in the meantime, while we don't, while this special master, so essentially there is a court appointed special master who will figure out or re, you know, redraw these maps. <laughs> um, while we wait for the special master to work, I think really where our campaign is at is the lines may change, right? The field may change. Um, and of course, we, no one knows for sure what, what exactly will happen. But what doesn't change is 
the values of this campaign and the organizing work and this campaign being a vehicle for organizing, really. So while we're waiting, we're still focused on organizing in the district, organizing around issues like affordable housing and pushing for a good cause eviction, um, organizing around a Green New Deal, right, and public renewables, organizing around um, healthcare for all, right, so the New York Health Act. And so we're going to keep going out there and keep talking to our neighbors about these really important issues because even with this huge shakeup, um, the stakes really haven't been higher or are, are as high as ever for our community. And so it really, it, again, the lines may change, but what won't change is, is the work we're doing to organize in the face of all these crises. Yeah. I'm sure it's a confusing uh, moment for the campaign and it makes things more difficult, but I think you really hit the nail on the head in saying that this campaign is more than about more than just uh, yourself as an individual. And you obviously want to win this race, but what you're really fighting for is this broader socialist program. And that means that you still want to be building power within your community, building up sort of institutions that can fight for, um, the Green New Deal and in the broader socialist program in the, in the long term. So it, it means there's there's no surrender uh, no matter what happens in the courts. And I just want to remind our listeners that you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're continuing our series of interviews with the DSA for the Many Slate and are talking to Kristen Gonzalez. And before we get back to Kristen, I just want to uh, talk to our listeners about keeping this show on the air and keeping the station on the air. Uh, and to do that, please call 212-209-2950 or go to WBAI.org. Again, the number to call is 212-209-2950. And this is such a critical time to be supporting uh the station so we can have shows like this as we see the the Supreme court is attacking the democratic rights of people. There's a concerted effort to undermine the right to abortion. And this is connected to a broader campaign that's happening all across this country where you're seeing books banned. They, this is, this is part of a, potential campaign to overturn gay marriage. There's a massive threat to people's democratic rights, but what WBAI represents is a, is a place of democracy for democracy. And this is what the station needs to continue to be. And we can only do that through these small dollar donations that keep the station alive, keep shows like revolutions per minute on the air. Where we're talking to candidates like Kristen Gonzalez, we're fighting for these democratic rights. We're fighting for a more broad socialist program that, so that people can have their material conditions improved, so that people can have good quality health care, good quality housing, not have to worry, uh, have good quality schools, and not have to worry about the constant threat of um, violence from the police, uh, not have to worry about whether or not they're going to have control over their own bodies. So I think this is a a key, key place to keep alive in this broader fight, this broader movement. So please call the station 212-209-2950 to donate, or you can go to WBAI.org. So Kristen, back to you. You were uh, mentioning your work in uh, the Tech Action Working Group um, earlier in the show. And also, 
we've been discussing your district and what your district's going to end up being, but uh, the defeated Amazon HQ2 would have been located in Long Island City. Uh, were you involved in the organizing to stop Amazon? And how does the current uh, labor organizing at Amazon f- facilities connect to your race? Yeah, so I, you know, I was involved, I, in the sense, I, I showed up, in, involved in a few different ways. So first, as someone who's showing up to protest, pushing back on the Amazon headquarters, HQ2, here in Long Island City. But I also, after, you know, Amazon decided not to have their headquarters here and we won, right? We won that battle. That building is a publicly owned building. It's a, it's a building um, owned by the Department of Education. And so actually it was part of the Western Queens Community Land Trust, which is the first land trust established in Queens, right? That was fighting to ensure that that publicly owned building didn't go not only to Amazon, but didn't go to another developer, right? And so after Amazon left, um, the city was looking to sell it to another real estate developer to further gentrify and develop our communities. And so we organized against that and they dropped that contract. And so we're still fighting for that building. But, you know, in fighting in this part of this Amazon fight, I think, you know, I've been looking at a few different ways of, of pushing back. So, you know, not only is it relevant to the district, then it's still relevant because we still have that building. We still have the fight for publicly owned land, um, you know, very much. Uh, important at a time where Long Island City is just becoming increasingly developed and our public land is being sold to private developers. So I think that's the first part. I think the second part, um, you know, why it's also important and relevant to this race is as someone who organized against Amazon, uh, you know, my opponent right now I'm running against Elizabeth Crowley, who is the cousin of former Congressman Joe Crowley, which many know because that's the same congressman that AOC unseated and and beat. And, you know, she wanted three years ago to give Amazon $3 billion so they could come and do whatever they wanted here in Long Island City, whatever they wanted here in Queens. And today she's actually working with, you know, the Global Strategy Group. While she's running for this new Senate seat, she's contracted them on and they're notoriously the same um, firm that failed to, you know, stop Amazon's unionization efforts. So it's especially relevant because at a time when we see Amazon workers in New York City unionizing, we I'm also running against an opponent that, you know, not only has supported Amazon in the past, but is now supporting firms that, you know, are notorious for union busting and were used by Amazon. So it's definitely an ongoing, <laughs> ongoing struggle in this race. And in Long Island City. Yeah, it just seems so ridiculous and outrageous that you would be have someone pushing for the state government at a, a moment where we need more funding for CUNY, where we need more mm-hmm. funding for housing, uh, for in the midst of a crisis of homelessness, uh, and so, more funding for so many things that meet the basic conditions for millions of people across the city and the state. And you have people encouraging to give money to Amazon, the wealthiest corporation in the world, uh, and not being on the right side of the fight where you have actual labor organizing occurring at these Amazon facilities where you can build up the sort of power necessary to take on this uh, behemoth uh, that has the ability to dictate to 
supposedly democratically elected officials um, what's going to be done um, with the economy. So I think uh, it's clear that you are on the side that is opposed to the exploitation and the um, resource hoarding that Amazon is guilty of and uh, your opponent is is not um, not on that side. Uh, but there are a lot of other fights uh, happening within your district. Um, it currently sh- uh, straddles uh, Newtown uh, Creek, which is a federally recognized Superfund site polluted for decades by the fossil fuel industry. How has the environmental history of the area impacted your policy around policies around energy? Yeah, so this district's exciting for so many reasons, but I think one of um, the most you know, important environmental reasons is that this is the first time that both sides of Newtown Creek, like you mentioned, would be included in the same district. So you have um, Greenpoint and Long Island City. Uh, so that's, again, that's both sides of the creek. And, you know, Greenpoint has the largest underground oil spill in the entire country. So we're not only talking about cleaning up Newtown Creek, we're also talking about Greenpoint, right, in the context of Greenpoint, in the context of a community that has been harmed, deeply harmed for generations by fossil fuels that have families that have lost members in the past because of, you know, health crises that have been caused by the amount of pollution in Greenpoint, right? So these are real life consequences. Um, And so I think it's an important district because we not only have a chance to advocate for more, um, for not only cleaning up Newtown Creek, but also improving some of our infrastructure. We also have uh, the North Brooklyn pipeline, right? So um, essentially a lot of activists are working to push back on the North Brooklyn pipeline. And we want to ensure through this campaign that we're also championing those efforts and saying, not only do we need to clean up and hold those fossil fuel company is accountable for, you know, the history of damage they've done in Greenpoint, but we need to make sure that we're pushing back on current efforts to expand the pipeline. And then finally, we need to also fight for legislation that ensures our future, right? So it's really past, present, future. It's what have we, what are we doing to rectify the past? What are we doing to fight back on expansions now? And what are we doing to secure our future? And then that last one for us, it looks like building public renewables and fighting for the Build Public Renewable Act, uh, Renewables Act, so BPRA. Um, and so, yeah, this is an exciting district because of Newtown Creek. It, it's an exciting district because of Greenpoint. And then it's also exciting because it really represents, you know, in a smaller sense, what 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 will we do to really address the climate crisis that we're all facing together beyond this district, right? Absolutely. I really like that phrase, uh, past, present, and future, because it, it captures what has gone on with the the pollution of the fossil fuel industry, how it's impacted people in so many different ways, how you have the direct health impacts that occur through pollution that is occurring, you know, in the immediate areas. And then you have the, the long-term consequences of climate change um, and the, the absurdity of building more fossil fuel inf- infrastructure at a moment where the scientists are saying it's clear that we need to transform our energy system dramatically and public power uh, is the way to do it through renewables, through democratically owned and um, managed energy. And it's, and we need politicians like you who are pushing forward on public power and not hesitating 
to actually fight back against the devastation that climate change will uh, wreak on us all. Um, and so I just want to bring it back to uh, DSA Tech Action for a little bit because um, you've discussed some of the work that uh, DSA Tech Action has done, but uh, what is that working group um, organizing around uh, right now? So right now we are focused on an internet for all campaign. And I'm sure you saw, I'm sure, you know, everyone um, listening has seen through the pandemic how not only increasingly apparent the digital divide is in the city, but the need for internet as a right, right? Um, so we started the Internet for All campaign last year. We're continuing to grow it because we acknowledge that similar to Con Edison, right, when we talk about public power, we talk about having these large private monopolies, that the solution isn't to continue to shovel over our public dollar, you know, our public money into private hands. It's really how do we create a public model, um, not only for power, but also for internet, right? Again, more um, so more publicly owned infrastructure. So our Internet for All campaign is really to have municipal broadband, which is really to say that, you know, New Yorkers at a baseline are similar to Con Ed, paying incredibly high, paying premiums, incredibly high prices, um, are struggling to keep up with the rising cost of living. And it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't have these large monopolies, large internet companies. There are also monopolies that are controlling the price of internet and giving us very subpar service for those, um, for those high prices. So let's create, you know, let's take back control of our, of our internet and let's create municipal broadband. Um, and that campaign has gained a lot of steam and momentum, especially at a time where Internet is just essential for finding a job, essential for students, essential for teachers, essential for finding key information about, you know, health and the public health crisis. So I'm, I'm excited about the work that, that DSA Tech Action is doing with that. Yes, it seems like it's a really great campaign and it's a, a policy that, as you mentioned, ensures access for everybody to the internet, which is something that within the 21st century you need to, to be able to to function within society. Mm-hmm. That uh, without it, as you mentioned, it's difficult to get a job. It's difficult to work certain jobs. So a lot of work is now uh, remote. Um, there's there's all these challenges um, that come without having access to the internet, and and, and also for schooling, it's um, critical as well. And I think. What unites um, the public power and this um, public internet campaign uh, for all is that utility companies, uh, as you've brought up, are these monopolies. And there's these monopolies that are uh, these private-public partnerships that have guaranteed profit rates. Mm -hmm. And this should be seen as an absurdity to anyone that you basically have these guaranteed rates that are guaranteed profits that are coming out of all of our pockets, just heading straight to investors, regardless of the quality of what they're doing. So even in any sort of logic, it doesn't make sense that this is the way the system is operating. And so this is, a, I think, a really great campaign to, to challenge um, the basic structure of, of how utilities are functioning um, within New York State and, uh, and can be challenge the way they're functioning across the country yeah. and sorry i was like no, go ahead. and failing right 
they're functioning and they're failing. So they're functioning for some, but they're failing. For example, internet companies, um, the city did a study and 46% of, you know, households living below the poverty line or living in poverty don't have access to broadband at home. So they're failing that promise of bringing broadband to everyone, right? And they're only functioning for those who can afford it or those who happen to be in areas that are of interest to those companies, similar to how Con Ed and our public power system is failing families that can't afford to pay their light bills. And as someone who grew up in a family that often had to choose at the end of the month what bills we could afford to pay, what bills we could afford to not pay that month, light was always an incredibly stressful one. And then you add on internet and everything else, the rising cost of rent. Um, you know, these utility these utilities are are functioning but they're but they're failing families, you know, like mine that struggle with these decisions every day. And and speaking of failing, housing has been an issue. We've talked to uh, to many of the DSA many, uh, for the many candidates so far, and and everyone who lives in the city right now knows with rent skyrocketing, with um, homelessness, people suffering with tens of thousands suffering from homelessness, that the housing policy in New York is a failure. So you, can you tell us about the housing situation in your district and what policies you're running on? Right. So I've been spending a lot of time, as you can imagine, the last few months knocking on thousands of doors. And I'm glad you're bringing up housing because that's the thing that comes up the most. Right. Um, I'm in a district that is, you know, I'm a renter, but is also composed mostly of renters. Right. Um, and rents citywide have gone up over 30% the last couple of years. And so that's why when we started and and launched this campaign, we had three main priorities and we still do. And that is first and foremost housing, then it's, you know, health uh, to ensure that everyone has access to healthcare and a Green New Deal, right? And running as part of a Green New Deal slate. So, um, so yeah, housing is, is important to the campaign. It's one of our central focuses. As I mentioned, with the rising costs, a lot of our um, constituents have been getting pushed out or displaced. Um, and then in response to that, we're really pushing for legislation like good cause eviction, which, um, again, for, for those who may be less familiar or may have heard of it recently but aren't quite sure what good cause eviction means, it's a bill that limits rent increases on all buildings in New York State. Um, and if it's passed, it prevents landlords from increasing the rent by more than 150% of the consumer price index. And it also means that they can only evict a tenant for two main reasons, right? One, the owner wants to live in that unit or the tenant violates terms of their leases. And they can't evict simply to retaliate against a tenant. They can evict simply to make sure that that apartment's keeping up with market rate. And it and again, ensures that if you are a good tenant, which so many of our working class families absolutely are, you are not at risk of eviction. Um, and that should, you know, in a, you were saying in the context of failure, um, that should be a priority for not only our city government, but our state government and not addressing this housing crisis because we have millions of families at risk of eviction is a real failure. And we have been failing. We will continue to fail if we do not elect new leadership on our on our state, um, on the state level. Yeah, we're, we're already living within a housing crisis. And the fact is that the millions, as, as you mentioned, more face this threat of eviction, while yeah. people's uh, 
bank accounts are going increasingly to their landlord. And this has to have, this has far rippling consequences, not just for these individuals, but for the society as a whole, where more and more money flows uh, to the top, to the people who own property, to the few who own property, um, Mm -hmm. while the rest are, are suffering under this regime. And it's probably all uh, also creating a massive um, a bubble that could uh, spread and threaten uh, homeowners as well. So I think it's a, a generally um, a dangerous situation. Uh, but we have around 10 minutes left in the show. So this time we'd love for our listeners to call in and talk to us. So you can please give us a call at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212 209 Two eight seven seven. So uh, while we are waiting uh, for, for callers to call in, is there uh, any way that our listeners can get uh, involved in your campaign? Absolutely. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we're still going to be out there the next few weeks while we wait to see what happens with these maps. So we could use all the help we can get. Um, so I would encourage folks to go onto our website gonzalezforeignly.com, which is, you know, Gonzalez spelled G-O-N-C-A-L-E-C for F-O-R N-Y.com. And, um, you know, we definitely need people to sign up for a field. But if you are someone who can't be out, you know, doesn't want to knock doors and and canvas, that's totally okay because there are opportunities to phone bank. There are opportunities to also volunteer with internal admin in the campaign. If you're someone who likes, let's say, things like communications, come on, help us with our communications plans. And then finally, and I have to, have to, have to make this ask because, uh, unfortunately, this is the reality of all campaigns. We also need money to run our operations. So if you're able to donate, that makes a huge difference. We're not taking real estate money. We're not taking corporate money. Um, and so we're focusing on individual donations. And every dollar goes a really long way for us because, you know, a dollar is funding our lit, which is what we use at the doors to help do that political education with our voters, right? So it, it makes a big difference and would encourage folks to volunteer as well as donate. Well, I just want to remind our listeners that the phone lines are open, uh, so please call in at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. So while we wait for um, some callers, just what's it like to be part of running with part of the, uh, as part of the For the Many Slate? It's been a really good experience, I think. You know, not only do I have deep respect for my slate members, I think what's really exciting being part of a slate, and especially I'm part of a, you know, Green New York slate that focuses on an issue, right, like climate, um, it is a chance to organize past our district. So, of course, running a campaign, you're very focused on your district, but when you have a slate, you're talking about how this relates to the broader city, how this relates to other neighborhoods. So we're doing everything as part of an organization and a larger movement, right? The movement for affordable housing, the movement for, um, you know, again, a livable future and green union jobs through a green new deal. And I think that's what's been really powerful is the solidarity between slate members, but also the solidarity between neighborhoods and districts. 
Yeah, being connected to an organization allows a single campaign to be kind of brought together in a broader program to to bring more volunteers out to feel part of a collective project and to kind of increase uh, the the power. There's it's uh, it, that makes it more than the sum of its parts. Uh, but we do have a caller uh, on the line, so I just want to uh, welcome the caller to the show. You are live in Revolutions per Minute. What's your name and what's your question and or comment? I just, my name is Lisa, and um, I just want to say that um, a lot of people try to act like they're so concerned, and once they get elected, they're very cold. And I went to one of these famous um, elected officials, and she claimed that she cares so much about the working class, but when you go into her office, they were very cold and not very nice. And... By the way, her name was AOC. Well, yeah, I'm, well, thank you for, for calling in and, and for asking. Um, I, I guess the question is, you know, one, I, I just, I'm sorry you had that experience and obviously I'm not part of that office, so I can't really speak to, to that. But what I can speak to is our, my own values and as someone who is, really part of this movement because I believe it's not a movement based on fear of what might happen, but it's really based on love, love of my family, love of my community, love of other working class, um, you know, members of our city. Um, that's really, that love is what I want to foster within my, not only campaign, but would be, you know, as an elected within my office and within my district. So I think, you know, we do this more from a place of love than anything. Um, and I think, you know, of course, again, I'm sorry that you had that experience, um, and can't really speak to, to others, but I can definitely speak to, you know, what I, as someone who's running for office, the values I have and what I would want to, what environment I would want to foster. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for calling in. Yeah. Just to add on to the response, I'm not going to, uh, speak about any particular politician, but I think, you know, what the caller is addressing or not, not exactly what the caller is addressing, but uh, what the caller's comment made me think about is, is the necessity of having politicians being connected organizationally to a broader movement. And rather than emphasizing these personal experiences, because, you know, you could have, you could have a bad experience with somebody who's on your same side in a fight as well. Uh, I think this is a possibility, but that once you have a movement and you have organizations, we have a growing labor movement across the city. Um, that's an active fighting labor, labor movement. And, and we're seeing this uh, sprout up with Amazon labor uh, union with the uh, workers united with Starbucks with, Hopefully my union PSC will be getting out in the streets and that's something I'm working towards, but that there's that you, once you have this working class activity, working class organization, you have a growing tenants union movement that when you build these um, bridges into the neighborhood, when you have organizations themselves rooted, then it's not about just being connected to a single politician. It's that the organizations work together to get politicians who are fighting for the organizations uh like NYC DSA elected. And I think that's what makes your campaign so important is that it's about, it's connected to something 
like the fights that you've been involved in with NYC DSA's Tech Action Working Group, and that you've been involved in the fight on the on the ground floor, and then now you can bring the fight to another space into Albany. So I think it's it's a balance, and I just want to check and see if we have any other callers on the line. Sadly, no. All right. Um, well, we only have a minute or so left in the show. So, Kristen, do you have any final comments? Um, no, I just thank you so much for having me. Again, I've you know I'm, I've actually had really good experiences at AOC's office, so I'm sad. So I would like to say for all our listeners, I you know they do a lot of great work. Um, but I also just appreciate what you said, Jack, about you know the bridge into the community and, and that's really what we're doing in this campaign. That's what we're doing as DSA is building bridges into all communities, not only in one district, one space, but again, in, as part of a larger movement, right? In, in multiple neighborhoods and multiple communities, not only in the city, but nationwide, right? We're a national organization too. So, um, so I'm excited about that work. I'm excited to be running and I just invite everyone listening, please join us. Um, we have our primary is no longer in June. It's actually in August. So we have more time to do all of that great organizing um, and, of course, knock doors. So please join us. And I hope to see you all at canvases or virtually at phone banks. And um, appreciate appreciate you, Jack, and, and having me on again. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Revolutions Per Minute. We are going to keep our eyes and ears on your campaign, and we'll continue to update our listeners about uh, how it's going. And hopefully uh, some of them will be uh, – well, I can't encourage anyone to do anything, but maybe we'll hear from some volunteers uh, later on in uh, the year. And I just want to uh, thank our listeners for tuning into Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you out in the streets, uh, organizing your workplaces, and doing whatever you can for the movement. Uh, Thank you once again. This is Jack Devine with Revolutions Per Minute.